Our text this morning is the entirety of the chapter. As we look at the first of three trials, as it were, that Paul will go under for the gospel. He will be this week before Felix, then we will see him next week before Festus, and then following that before Agrippa. So if you would please give attention to the reading of the Word of God. The Word of God is completely without error. It is wholly sufficient for us. And it is completely authoritative. Acts, chapter 24, beginning at verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned... Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made to this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple, or in the synagogues, or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection both of the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or let Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. 
Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, you indeed are the author of your word. And we ask this morning, Lord, that you would teach us by it, convict us by it, and encourage us with it. For the name and the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Procrastination. We all participate in it often, don't we? It comes from a Latin word that has in its roots put off and tomorrow. I was going to come with a more precise definition, but I thought I'd get to that on Tuesday. You see, we all do this. We put off things that are difficult. We put off things that challenge us. We put off things that we don't believe we're quite ready for. And that may be okay when we decide to mow the lawn later this week. We may be okay if we decide to clean the attic next month. But there are certain things that you just should not put off ever. When the engine light is blaring at you from your car, you shouldn't say, oh, I'll get that looked into in a couple of months. Unless, of course, you want to buy a new engine. But most of all, we see in our text this morning that the most dangerous thing that can be done is to put off spiritual things. And this is a malady that afflicts our nation, it afflicts the world, and it afflicts the church. As we put off the challenge to faith in Christ, as we put off the challenges to sanctification that the Lord puts in our path. And so this morning we're going to see the dangers that are involved with that. And we will also see, Lord willing, how the Apostle Paul deals with continuing attacks on his person. Lord willing, we will see three things. We will see first the accusation that comes against Paul. And then second, the answer that he gives, the defense that he gives. And then third, the response, especially of Felix. Let's look first then at the accusation that comes against the Apostle Paul. You remember where we are. Paul is before a Roman governor. Because he has been in Jerusalem, he went into the temple to fulfill a vow to try and bring unity to the church. He was almost killed, saved only by the timely intervention of Roman troops. 
And the Roman troops didn't know what to do with him. They hear of a plot on his life, and they realize the only place that he could be safe is back in Caesarea where the governor is. So he's in Caesarea now awaiting the charges that come. And the Jews are not about to let this matter lie. Because you see, behind the accusation is a hatred. A hatred for Paul, a hatred for Jesus, a hatred for the gospel. And you see, they are motivated by this hatred. You can see it in the details. Do you notice what Luke tells us in the first verse? That the high priest Ananias himself comes to Caesarea. Now this is a 65 mile journey. This is no short trip by foot or even by donkey or mule. And Ananias is not exactly a spring chicken. But he believes this is important enough. He is so motivated by a hatred of Paul that he will come there himself to see Paul get what he has coming to him. Because you see, they don't need Ananias to speak. They're also, I would imagine, quite excited. Because Paul is in the custody of Felix. And Felix is known... Well, in our historical Western vernacular, as the hanging judge. He's got the noose right under his desk, ready to string him up. Felix is known for his punishment that is swift and is severe. He is not a merciful man. As a matter of fact, most of the Sanhedrin hates him because he has been putting down any insurrection by any of the Jews. So we have here the high priest. We have a hanging judge, and what would be a trial without the high-powered lawyer? That's who Tertullus is. Now, this is, of course, the ancient days, so he doesn't have a sharkskin suit worth $5,000, but I would assume he has a robe that is a cut above others. Tertullus is a Roman, we know from his name, and it's very likely because of the language that is included in his speech, that it was originally given in Latin, and Luke translated it into Greek for us. He is a hired hand. He has no real interest in the law, or Moses, or the Sanhedrin, or Sadducees, or Pharisees, or Paul. His interest is in the fee. And he's very good at what he does. Now, this may actually signal to us, and perhaps to Felix, the weakness of the case against Paul. We see this all the time, don't we? I remember years ago, one of the things that started a rumor about how weak O.J. Simpson's defense was, was because he had not one, not two, but three high-powered lawyers to defend him. Do you recall that? So Felix is looking out here and he's seeing a Roman. And he might also be thinking to himself, I'm sure Paul is, they're playing the Roman card too. They didn't want Felix to dislike a Jewish spokesman or attorney, so they brought in a Roman. They are trying every trick in the book. This is the outworking of the great hatred they have against Paul. This accusation is motivated by hatred, but it is also accomplished by lies. We can see that right from the beginning. Tertullus begins by, again, to use a a colorful phrase, buttering up the court. I don't know where that comes from because I, if I were a person, I would not want someone to put butter on me to make me more inclined 
to their case, but this is certainly what's happening here. Look how he begins. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and through by your foresight, that's the same word as providence, by your providence, Felix, most excellent Felix, all these reforms are being made to the nation. Now, we don't have all of Tertullus' speech, but if we have, I think, a representative sample from Luke, a summary, we can look here and see that about half of his speech is compliments for Felix. So a good deal of his speech was very likely occupied with that. And it's, it's humorous because he's describing for Felix the exact opposite about how the Jews felt about him. They hated Felix's rule. He didn't have reforms. They were squashing the Jewish identity. That's what the Romans were doing. They were afflicting the people. They wanted a king to lead them out. They didn't like Felix at all. And they would have rather had anyone else but Felix. The Romans were bad enough, but Felix was the worst of the Romans. He was a former slave. He was harsh. So he's out and out lying. And you can imagine, Felix didn't get to his position without at least some level of shrewdness. Have you ever heard someone come up and give you compliments that you know they don't believe? And that you know that they know you don't believe? That's what's going on here. It's so obvious. But you see, this is what is behind the accusation. Hatred and lies. And what are the lies that they say about Paul? Well, there's three. First, they say he's a troublemaker. Do you see this here? In chapter 24... In verse 5, they found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. You see, first, they're trying to convince Felix that Paul is trouble, not just for them, but for Felix as well. Because the Romans liked, above all else, peace and quiet. And so they want to paint Paul as a troublemaker, a plague. The other way you could translate this word is a pest or a pestilence. Do you all like pests? What do you do with pests? You kill them. And not only that, pests are the type of things that you can't deal with just once. How many of you spray for bugs? Many of you, right? How many of you spray once a year for bugs? No. You have to spray every month. And if it's too long between periods of time, the bugs come back. You see, that's what they want to paint Paul as. He's a troublemaker. Every place he goes, he makes trouble. Deal with him now. Squash him, Felix. He's a troublemaker. But he's more than that. He's a crazy ringleader. Look at verse 5. He is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And they use that word intentionally. It's not the word for leader. It's not the word for proponent. It means ringleader. And it's the same way that we use the word. You hear it on the news when someone is the ringleader of a gambling ring or a theft ring. And worse than that, he's the ringleader of crazy people. He doesn't say the way. He doesn't say a period or a portion of Judaism. He doesn't say a faith. He says a Nazarene sect. You see, this would be like comparing... Paul and Christianity to Harold Camping, trying to paint all of Christians like that. Or like the Baptist church that goes to every funeral and protests against funerals of 
servicemen trying to paint all Christians with that brush. This can be a real problem. One of the things that you'll hear tonight in our report on General Assembly is there is a movement in Muslim lands a supposed Christian missionary movement that is telling Muslims not to leave the mosque, to keep performing the five pillars of Islam, and really to just try and blend in as much as they can. And the true Christians are saying, you're painting us with this brush. People think we're liars too. You see, that's the brush they're trying to paint Paul with. The third thing they accuse him of is desecrating the temple, which is, of course, as we know, an out-and-out lie. This is the accusation that comes against Paul. So what can Paul do? Well, what Paul can do is offer a defense. And he does two things in offering a defense. First, he is prepared. And second, he is honest. And this is something that we can learn from and think of as we are called to defend the faith and defend our characters. First, Paul is prepared. He knows whom he's speaking to. He knows who Felix is. So you'll see he begins a bit differently from Tertullus. He says, Knowing for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. He is polite, but he's not obviously false. He's giving Felix the benefit, the compliment speaking intelligently to him, not trying to pull the wool over his eyes. You see, he knows Felix has been here for some time. He knows, as we'll see later, Felix has a Jewish wife. So he cheerfully makes his defense because he knows Felix is one of the few Romans that actually knows a bit about Judaism. So in God's providence, it's good for Paul. He's polite, but he's not lying. Because you see, this kind of overly mushy, overly complimentary speech really backfires, doesn't it? Some of us are old enough to remember either the original version or at least reruns of Leave it to Beaver, aren't we? And if you remember Leave it to Beaver, you remember the character, Eddie Haskell. And Eddie began every speech, usually an attempt to get something with, Why, Mrs. Cleaver, you are looking stunning today. You're looking so beautiful. And, of course, Mrs. Cleaver was much more intelligent even than Felix. She would look and say, thank you, Eddie, because she knew he was lying to her. You see, that kind of speech really doesn't get you anywhere. And as we defend the faith, as we defend Jesus Christ, as we defend our characters, we are called to be polite, but we are not called to be manipulative or to lie. Paul is prepared because he also has provable facts. You'll notice what Tertullus' case is. It's a lot of wind. He doesn't even offer up any evidence. The best evidence he can come up with is, well, good governor, if you question Paul, you'll see what we're talking about. Now, in our judicial system, if the prosecutor did that, it would be thrown out before the defense was even given. You see, Paul points to good, hard facts. The first thing that Paul says in verse 11 is, you can independently verify what I'm telling you. Now, this is also true of the Christian faith, is it not? We don't depend on others 
to simply believe what we believe. We say, you should investigate the claims of Jesus Christ. You should read the scriptures for yourself. You should see the change that Christ has made in others for yourself. I'm testifying to it, but you don't have to be hoodwinked. You don't have to believe it just because I do. And children, that's exactly what we're getting at in that baptism this morning. It is not enough for you to just know what your parents believe and latch on to it. You must believe it for yourself. You must hold on to it. And Paul then begins to lay out the facts. I think Tertullus didn't realize that he had the preeminent ex-Pharisee, Sanhedrin member, missionary, apologete, speaker. Because Paul begins to go down through his list. You see here in verses 11 and 12, he says, I couldn't possibly have done what they said. I was only, I've only been here 12 days. And the last five I've been in prison. Have I stirred anybody up while I was in prison? You can't possibly do all these things they're accusing me of in one week only. In verse 13, he says, you know, they can't prove what they're saying. Bring, ask them to bring some proof. There's no proof. It's just talk. And he then raises a wonderful procedural point. Paul had to spend some time in law school, I think. He raises a procedural point in verse 19. He says, you know, actually, these guys aren't even the guys who accused me. It was some Asians in town, some Jews from Asia Minor. And guess who is conveniently absent, who can't be cross-examined, who aren't offering any evidence? He says, tell them to bring the Asian Jews here. Then maybe we can find out what's what. When he says that, I can almost imagine Tertullus straightening his tie, getting a little bit nervous, maybe with a handkerchief dabbing his forehead. And Paul continues, he says, there are no clear charges against me. Verse 20, he says, let them lay out the charge. Enough talk. Write it down. Put it in the book. You need a charge, Felix. And then finally, he says something in verses 14 and 15 that have served the church well, he says, Christianity is not novel. My faith is not novel. It is not something new that has sprung up. It is, I worship the God of my fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Adam himself. Whenever anyone comes up to you and says they have found a new kind of Christianity, that they have found a new insight that opens up the book of Romans like no one has ever seen, that only they understand the book of Revelation, you need to take three steps back quickly. May the Lord grant it that I never tell you anything new. Ever. The faith that has been delivered once to the saints, Jude tells us. And Paul says, there is nothing new here. I am just teaching what has always been believed. So Paul is prepared in his defense. And then Paul does something that we need to really pay attention to. What do you do when you are falsely accused? What do you do when your faith is challenged? What do you do when you are in a corner? You know what you do? Young people, do you know what you do? Oh, you've never been to seminary? Oh, you're not an adult yet? You don't know Greek or Hebrew? What can you possibly do? I'll tell you what you do. You be honest. When you are in a corner, you stand with the truth. And the truth will not let you down. 
That is what Paul does here. Do you see it? He's in a corner and he says, I will confess this. I do believe according to the way. I'm not going to deny that. I don't believe the exact same things that they do. He's completely honest with them. Honesty is not only the best policy, it is the only policy. Your word is your bond. How can you stand for the word of God, which is truth, and for Jesus Christ, who is truth himself, unless you are willing to be truthful? You see, we must resist the temptation to lie. It comes to us in subtle ways, doesn't it? Someone asks you how you're doing. And you're having the worst day of your life. And you say, oh, I'm just fine. Someone asks you about your faith in Christ. And you mumble something and hope it'll go away. And you'll deal with it when you're more able. When it's a more convenient time. You see, the temptation even to give little lies is always before us. As we stand in this world, we must stand for Jesus Christ. Paul does. He confesses he is a Christian, that his hope is in God, and that his conscience is clear. And you see that his conscience is clear because he strove to make it so. You see that here? He says, I have a clear conscience. I have always striven to have a clear conscience. That word is the same type of word that we use for athletes. You've watched athletes practicing and playing, sweat pouring down their heads, Muscles that are sore. That is the way you must pursue a clear conscience. You must pursue it. Strive after it. And you can do it. Because only Christianity, only Christianity gives the power to follow the Lord's Word. Every other religion will tell you how to be good. None of them will give you power to do good. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ can you actually do the things in the law. By God's grace, we are equipped to do the works that God has prepared for us beforehand. There is no other faith, no other philosophy, no other understanding that does that. This is the defense that Paul gives. So there's been an accusation and there's been a defense. How will the judge rule? What will he do? Well, I will put it to you that the actual verdict is among the least important things in this text. You see, because the real response that is wanted here is not a response of guilty or not guilty of a crime that Paul has been accused of, but it is a response, what will you do with Jesus, Felix? Because you see, even here, we've seen it before, Paul just can't give up preaching, ever. Even when he's on trial for his life. Now you have to understand here, he's standing before the hanging judge. There's probably a beam that he could be crucified on five minutes after the verdict. This could be the end of his life, but he has said to live is Christ, to die is gain. I will stand and preach Jesus. Do you live your life that way? Is your life a testimony for what Jesus has done to you? Do you not care what tomorrow brings, but today you will seize for Jesus? Because that is what you are called to, Christian. 
You may not be called to preach in a stadium. You may not be called to teach a Sunday school. But you are called to follow the Lord Jesus Christ so that others see and they walk the same path behind you. To find that cross. To love that Savior. You see, in this response, God gives Felix first an opportunity. There is an opportunity given. There is first a divine pause. Do you see this? We might expect the trial to go along as other trials have gone. And Felix is caught in a spot here. He knows Paul is right, but he doesn't want to upset the Jewish authorities. Because that causes trouble. And trouble is not good. Not only is it not good in Jerusalem, if back in Rome they hear that you're not in control, they might call you back. They might even punish you as governor. So he doesn't want any of that. And so what he does is he suspends the case. He says, well, of course we need Lysias here. Is Lysias here? And he's not. Of course, Lysias is unavailable because of the controversy in Jerusalem. He needs to be there in case there's trouble. So there's an opportunity given here to Felix. There's a pause here. And it's a pause that Paul seizes upon. He begins to speak again of the resurrection. He speaks of the resurrection not only of the just, but of the unjust. I like to think in my sanctified imagination when he says that, he puts a little edge on the word and he eyeballs Felix. You know, this is not just a Jewish thing, Felix. You're involved here too. And he speaks of the resurrection. He confronts Felix with the judge of all, Jesus Christ. How much time last week did you spend thinking about the resurrection and the final judgment? There's a poster out in that hall there, the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. He wrote them, young people, when he was 17 or 18, all 70 of them. And one of them says to never do anything but that I would do it on the last day. Is that how you spent your week? Now, that doesn't mean you can't do things like eat or play or sleep or talk, but you must do all of those things in light of eternity to the glory of God. There are no special things for the glory of God, but everything you do must be in accordance with His will and it must be seeking His glory. This is a pause that has been given. And Felix knows a bit about Christianity. He's been dabbling on the edges. Do you see here in verse 22, he has a rather accurate knowledge of the way. This is a comparative adjective for those of you grammarians. You know, good, better, best. This is better. He has a better, a more accurate understanding of the way than almost anyone in Rome. And I think Luke is actually saying here, better than the Sanhedrin themselves. So he is prepared. This is a wonderful opportunity that is placed before him. What do you think Paul does with it? Paul does what he always does. He grabs it with both hands and he holds on for dear life. He seizes that opportunity and he begins to preach to Felix. He tells Felix, if you believe, you will have your best life now. If you just believe, Felix, your marriage will be perfect. Oh, Felix, don't you want to find true meaning in life? 
No, he doesn't. He preaches. And like a machine gun, he uses the word grace over and 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 over, and over again. Because, of course, the word grace saves. Right? No, he doesn't. He preaches and he preaches about righteousness and self-control and the final judgment. He has not, obviously, been trained in evangelism. He tells Felix that he must be righteous and there is one who is righteous. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that he probably tells him over and over again of all of the ways in which the Lord Jesus Christ has been righteous. And he tells him about self-control. Not only must he be righteous in himself, he must be controlled. He must follow the way itself. Now, this is not an easy thing to do because he's talking to Felix who has made his living by bribery and whose current wife is his third wife that he has stolen from someone else. Ooh, that's a little hot under the collar. Does the Apostle Paul pull back? Is he afraid that maybe Felix will get upset with him and the opportunity will be lost? No. Because Paul knows that even if he gets Felix to say, I believe in Jesus, and there's no substance behind it, there's no Holy Spirit conversion, there's no change of life, it is worthless. Actually, Felix will be worse than if he had done nothing at all. So Paul preaches to him of righteousness, of self-control, and of the coming judgment. Paul is well positioned to do this because of the life that he has lived. He is eloquent in his speech, which means he's competent. Competency is a good thing for a Christian, not a bad thing. He is blameless before the world, which gives his words weight. Some of you have heard of Chuck Colson. Many of you know him, especially you younger folk, know of him as the leader of prison fellowship. Angel tree, gifts for children of prisoners. You don't know him as the hard-nosed, lying, cursing, manipulating convict from Watergate. And you see, when Chuck Colson met the Lord Jesus Christ, and he went on trial... Unlike anyone else, he looked at the judge and he said, I am guilty. You must punish me. And he got a prison sentence. And he suffered. He was without his family for a time. Prison isn't fun. But when he got out, he had a standing unique among Christians to say and declare that Jesus is Lord and that honesty is the policy and we must follow God's word even to our own detriment. You see, because he was willing to stand up and take responsibility for his actions. So must we. The world is watching us. They don't need our fake smiles. They don't need platitudes. They need to know that we are real followers of Jesus and that Jesus makes a real difference. We are not perfect, but we are forgiven. Do you know that forgiveness? If you don't, stop playing games. It won't get you anywhere. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Own up your lack. You see, Jesus takes your weakness and He makes it strength. He takes your lies and He brings you into truth. He changes you forever by His grace. This 
is what Paul has done. And that is an opportunity that we have today, just like Paul did, to preach the gospel, to be different in a world that is vicious, untruthful, and deceptive. Paul has seized that opportunity. But what does, what does Felix do with it? Well, what Felix does with it is something that I saw a few Olympics back. As a relay team was running and they were winning and it was clear and the baton was to be passed, it was dropped. And all was lost. You see, Felix takes this opportunity and it's lost. It's obvious that Paul has made an effect on him. Our text tells us that he was alarmed. We might also say, with the old King James, he trembled. He was affected by what Paul said. Paul was pressing his point home. He knew about righteousness. He knew about self-control. He was afraid of the judgment to come. But you see, he was unwilling to leave his sin. We see that because the next phrase is, hoping to get some money, he brought Paul back some more. He could not let go of his sin. What sins are you willing to to let go of? You must let go of your sins. Grace changes. It is not something we say and think. It is something we live. He's alarmed. He's unwilling to leave his sin. But finally, he procrastinates. Look at God's mercy, which is like coals heaped up on Felix. How long is Paul there to converse with him? Two years. Felix can't find a convenient time in two years. It's like Pastor Carroll preached on last week. Right? Send someone to tell them, Father Abraham, send him to tell my brothers. And he says, you know, they have the law and the prophets. They wouldn't believe somebody if they came back from the dead. That's true, isn't it? Because one has come back from the dead. And they don't believe him. I'd like to close this morning with a quote from Augustine. It's applicable to any of you here who have not seized Jesus Christ by faith. But it's also applicable to the Christian who is not following Jesus. God has promised forgiveness to your repentance. But He has not promised tomorrow to your procrastination. You must live for Jesus now. You must walk with Jesus now. You must trust Him by faith now, not for some future better time. Jesus demands our all now. Let's pray.